0: Hi, my name is Dr. Taryn Marie Staskel, and I'm here to inspire you to go bigger with your dreams and goals so you can get bigger with your profits.
1: Welcome to the Go Big to Give Big podcast, where we are challenging six-figure earners to become seven-figure givers. Wanting to go bigger with your dreams and goals so that you can give bigger with your profits. Let's not waste any more time and jump right into it. Welcome back to another episode of the Go Big to Give Big podcast. And today's guest is the incredible Dr. Taryn Marie Staskel. She is the number one international expert on resilience in both leadership and life whose mission is to positively impact the lives of 1 billion people by enhancing hope, healing, and health through the concepts of resilience. Dr. Taryn has worked with companies such as Nike and Cigna, which are both massive organizations around the world, and she's worked in the leadership development roles and has also been involved with some incredible nonprofits that she shares about in this episode. This episode is full of takeaways on just how you can be resilient, what it means, and how you can grow your leadership skills, as well as how powerful our brains can be. I hope you enjoy listening to this incredible episode with Dr. Taryn Marie Stasekul. All right, I am fired up and excited to welcome today's guest, Dr. Taryn Marie Stasekul. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Thank you for having me. It's fantastic to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. Last time we had a little bit of a preview chat with you, Steve and I joked that it's basically we got our own private TED talk from you because everything you said was just pure gold and we couldn't stop talking about it after. And I'm excited to get into that and allow our audience to hear about what you've been able to do and what you've been able to accomplish. But I'd love for you to just share a little bit of your journey starting out. Obviously, you've had some success and you became head of leadership and development for Nike and had some success in there. And I'd love for you just to share about how you were able to get so passionate about leadership, climb the ranks, and some of the stuff you've seen while you were doing that job for Nike.
0: Yeah, it's such a great question. And it's interesting because a lot of people ask me about that role of Nike was head of executive leadership development. So I essentially looked after the development of the C-suite, Mark Parker, who was our CEO at the time. And then my team and I looked after the development of our top 400 vice presidents there and some of our athlete partners and it's interesting because I also had a role before that as head of global leadership development at Cigna where I worked across 80s we had offices in 86 countries and I looked at essentially kind of the leadership development learning and leadership development strategy for the entire organization from people that were individual contributors that didn't have teams all the way through to our executive ranks. And prior to that, I was a management consultant. So a lot of people asked me about the Nike role and it was a phenomenal sort of summit and mountaintop experience. And yet so many other kind of roles and experiences came before that, that allowed me to be ready for that experience when it came knocking.
1: What was one of the, like, the biggest things you learned about leadership along the way? Like, like walk us through how you were Uh, Able to become a executive coach for the CEOs in leadership. Like, how did you start working with executives and and what primarily in leadership excited you?
0: A lot of people start out their career and they want to work with executives right away. And I think there's opportunity for that. There's certainly merit in that. There's also a sense that a lot of executives who are going to choose someone who's going to work with them or their team, they want to know that you've had a similar experience or transferable experience to what they're experiencing in their organization. So now having my own company, Resilient Leadership Institute, when I meet with, I'm a fractional chief people officer for a cryptocurrency company currently as well. And so... A lot of the clients that we're talking with are really excited about the fact that I have sat in the same seat that they're sitting in now and that there's a sense of understanding and camaraderie there. One of the things that, I don't know, got me ready, I think, for, for working at Nike and working at the executive level is I'd actually been conducting 20 years of research on how we effectively face challenge as humans, and that's essentially resilience right? And so it was coupled with my management consulting experience, my other corporate experience, my doctorate degree, where I did pre and postdoctoral fellowships in neuropsychology. And then that two decades of research that was unique to anything that's available today in terms of understanding how we effectively face challenges. I'd say all of those things really positioned me to be able to work with executives in a concerted way and to feel that when I showed up at those tables, I had something unique and genuine to offer.
1: That's so fascinating and really cool. And I, I'm, we're going to dive into your story of resilience and the book that you've written that's coming out here in the new year in a little bit. I'd love to just hear what are some of the common traits that you saw working with executives that you thought were things that allowed them to succeed the most? handle the resilience of, of being an executive in a company or maybe entrepreneurs that are starting their companies that are going to face a lot of resilience and trouble? What are some of the characteristics that you saw stood out in that industry?
0: Well, uh, you mentioned entrepreneurs and then you also mentioned a corporate environment. And I think there's a significant crossover. Certainly there are, there's a unique set of skills and a unique profile for someone who is an entrepreneur, right? One of the things that exists that makes an entrepreneur successful that actually doesn't help you so much in corporate America is entrepreneurs get to be really comfortable with chaos and lack of structure. And I see time and time again in an entrepreneurial profile that entrepreneurs are comfortable with ambiguity or even chaos. They're comfortable not having structure. They're comfortable with disruption. And I would say also entrepreneurs tend to be very visionary to be able to see a positive and exciting future that doesn't exist today, right? So I think those are really important qualities for a CEO entrepreneur. In corporate, being someone who's comfortable with ambiguity can be very helpful. Cigna, one of the former companies that I worked for, we are in healthcare. That's a very ambiguous environment to be in. And even everything that's been introduced in the context of the pandemic has only created more disruptions and in, in terms of supply chain. So we're all living and kind of working in this sense of ambiguity. But being able or liking working in chaos doesn't translate as well to the corporate world. And also the corporate world wants you to follow a particular structure, standard operating procedures. And so being someone who doesn't need structure, maybe doesn't even like structure, that doesn't translate as well from the entrepreneurial profile to the corporate world. To answer your question, I think there's probably five key leadership behaviors that are key, whether it's across the board from entrepreneur to corporate executive. The first one is empathy. Empathy is how we connect with our, with our customers. It's how we understand how our product is utilized. It's how we are able to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that we're leading and the people to whom we want to sell our product or to have an amazing experience with the solution that we're creating. So empathy is incredibly critical, right? The second quality is to be able to lead through influence, right? If we have to manage everyone that, you know, in our company, and we're not able to lead across or vertically through influence, it can be very, very difficult to get things done. For an entrepreneur, this person oftentimes needs to lead through influence to get the right people and resources and to work within a given environment. In the corporate world, leading through influence means convening people together and being able to all move in the same direction, even if people don't necessarily report to you. Right? The third thing is being able to accurately assess threat, let's call it, right? So you or some of your listeners might remember we had these different threat levels, especially around like September 11th, right? Where it was like red or orange or yellow or green, right? If everything's code red all the time, you're going to burn out. You're going to exhaust yourself. You're going to have a heart attack or you're going to exhaust everyone else around you. in the interim and so being able to appropriately assess threat and not make everything code red but to really be able to differentiate between like what's red what's orange what's yellow and what's green and then respond accordingly because if you're constantly dropping everything to address something then you know your kind of day-to-day basic things don't get don't get I'd say the fourth leadership skill is communication. The best leaders that I see are able to communicate powerfully and prolifically. It's not enough just to have a vision for the future, to have an incredible strategy. If you can't share that with people or you don't have people around you who can translate what you're saying into communication that uplifts, that incites motivation, Mm -hmm. then it's really difficult to lead at that level. So just to recap, we've got empathy, we've got leading through influence, we've got appropriately assessing threat, communication. And then what I would say is the fifth quality, right, of most effective leaders is the ability to, in fact, have that vision for the future, right? To see the exciting future ahead, to get people on board, to be able to motivate, to envision what doesn't currently exist today and then in to inspire others to come, to come with you through the other characteristics that I mentioned.
2: I think those are super powerful and oftentimes are, are topics that we talk about here on the podcast. And I think one of the, my favorite of them anyways, I'll, I'll just say is the empathy aspect of things. I think it's an underrated skill, as you would call it a skill, not only in the business world, but in life in general. I don't think there's enough of it. And I've, I've worked in places that have it as a priority or a core value and places who don't even think about it and the amount of enthusiasm and momentum with the companies that highlight and incentivize empathy significantly different than the ones that don't from just a human perspective, I think you get people at their best, but I'm curious, I know that you have five pieces in your book are these the five same things so you go into deeper detail and, and no we got a whole other five set for us Do you want to yeah i've, to got, I've got a whole other
0: five i've got a whole other five and and they're related <clears throat> to what i said but they're different they're different characteristics that sorry <clears throat> i don't know what's going on with my voice you don't want your voice to go on a podcast i tell you what <laughs> so you asked about what are kind of across the board from entrepreneur to corporate executive? What are the five characteristics that are really kind of most powerful for people they're ascending in their career, which is what I mentioned? What I have studied relative to resilience. Is what are the characteristics that allow us to effectively face challenge? So, Mm -hmm. if we assume that challenge, change, and complexity is the fabric of what it means to be human, that you cannot live a human life without experiencing some level of those things, then knowing that those are inevitable, when those things show up in our lives, what do we do in those moments to be able to effectively address challenge? And it's relate it to the characteristics that I mentioned. But some of those characteristics as, as leaders, you can use empathy to solve challenges. You can use influence to solve challenges, right? But when we think about of the hundreds of people that I've interviewed and the thousands of pieces of data that I've collected, what that data set tells us is that there's five characteristics that are related that make us maximally resilient. So
2: I want to ask you about those, but I want to Perhaps paint a bit of a pre-story to it. So what I'm hearing is those particular pieces, or how to effectively deal with change or challenge. The, that that efficiency that comes with these five pieces that you'll share with us in a sec will be will be skills we have to build, not just like born with it, like 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 fight or flight is right. So can you maybe paint just a really quick picture on what a natural like human response? might look like to challenge or change? And then just kind of quickly go through the five different pieces of how we can perhaps go from, maybe it is fight or flight to, or like, screw that, I hate change, I'm out. I guess that'd be the flight aspect of things. And then touch on the the five pieces that we can build skills in.
0: Well, for sure. So what I'd say is part of my work is centered around the idea. So part of my work centers on debunking the myth that resilience is not inherent in what it means to be human. So so many people believe just what you said, Steve, which is that somehow resilience is something we have to go out and get. It's something we have to cultivate. It's something we have to find, right? And while we can increase our resilience, just like we can create, increase our cardiovascular capability or enhance our muscles in our body by going to the gym and exercising, resilience is actually the essence of being human. Meaning, we were all born resilient. When we logged into this podcast episode to come together today, the three of us collectively and anyone listening to the show, we've all made it through every disappointment, loss, rejection, unfortunate turn of events, bankruptcy, breakup, <laughs> car accident. We've made it through everything expected and unexpected that has shown up in our lives. And what that means is we are naturally created to be resilient when we take our first breath and when we enter this world. And I think that's a really exciting and freeing element of this to understand because then it's, then we stop having the conversation about like well i don't think i'm very resilient or maybe i'm not resilient enough right we stop having that conversation and we step into the full power and the complement of what it means to be resilient as a birthright as a as a natural part of our human essence and then we start to look at okay and if i want to develop my resilience how do i go about doing that and that's what the five practices do because anytime we face challenge change and complexity What do we say to ourselves? We say, what am I going to do, right? And so these are the five behaviors that we know empirically based on research. If we do one or some of these five things, it's going to create a more positive and productive outcome. And I think that's so exciting for us to embrace the fact that to be human means to, by definition, be resilient.
2: You've got me on edge now. Do you wanna do you wanna hit us with those or are they a teaser for for the the reader of the book in the future?
0: Yeah, I can actually yeah, I can absolutely share with those what you are. Now you also mentioned the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, right? So the sympathetic nervous system, as many of us know, this is like when we face challenge or threat, right? This so is like it's the cortisol pumping and the adrenaline going and the heart beating and all the things, right? And so in that moment, what are Sympathetic nervous system would tell us is that we have three choices, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. And what our parasympathetic nervous system, like once we kind of let that threat level back down and really allow what's happening to cascade over us, what the parasympathetic nervous system tells us is we have more choices than that. We have more choices than simply fight, flight, or freeze. And there's power in that. There's being empowered in that because we have choices then about how we can respond that's not just dictated by biology. And so in that, in that moment of choice, right? Viktor Frankl, author of Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about in between stimulus and response, there is a space, right? And that space is choice. And having choice about how we respond is one of the last and most important human freedoms. And so when we think about this moment of choice and how we respond, then we can make a better choice about how to be more resilient. So those five practices that we can choose to engage in, the first one is vulnerability. Now, vulnerability is allowing our inside self to match our outside self, to allow our thoughts, feelings, and experience to as closely match the self that we show to the world. And that definition is really important because so often people don't understand what vulnerability is or what it means to be vulnerable. It means to be congruent. If you're having a bad day, to be able to speak that. If you're having a difficult time, say like things are really hard right now, rather than holding that in. Now, vulnerability is important relative to leadership because vulnerability is the fertile ground for authenticity and empathy and leadership right? So we talked about empathy earlier. So vulnerability is basically the cornerstone for that. Because if you think about it, we can't empathize with someone's experience without first connecting to something vulnerable within ourselves, right? And so what it means to be an authentic and an empathetic leader comes first from this practice of vulnerability. Now, if we know vulnerability is good for us, why aren't we all running around living our most fabulous vulnerable lives, right? Great question. Because of a little something that seems to also be hardwired in us as humans called the vulnerability bias. And what the vulnerability bias tells us is the moment I'm thinking about telling you something vulnerable or authentic or empathetic, that little bias is like, no, 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 don't do that. The three L's will occur. People won't like you. They won't love you. And they might leave. Those are the three L's. And so we're like, oh, that seems scary. I'm going to stay in my vulnerability cage because if I say or share how I really feel or what I really think or what's really going on for me, those three L's are a powerful prohibition. But they're a faulty prohibition. They they lie to us. And so in order to be vulnerable, we have to push past the vulnerability by it in order to step into this full complement of our vulnerability. So the first practice is vulnerability. The second practice is productive perseverance. This is the art and the science of knowing how and when to intelligently pursue a goal. So many people have heard of this concept called grit, right? And grit means when challenge shows up, we get gritty, we put our head down, we do we keep going. That works great in a highly structured environment that doesn't change, right? If you want to be a Navy SEAL now or when you grow up or later, then you can be really gritty. If you want to graduate from the Naval Academy or from medical school, right? That's a very kind of stable environment. But when you look at the environment that we've all been living in, right, for these past couple of years, things are shifting and changing and moving and there's volatility and disruption. So if we simply just put our head down and go for it, we pick our head back up, the landscape might have changed. So productive perseverance is about, on the one hand, knowing when to be gritty, when to pursue goals in the face of challenge. And on the other hand, knowing when to pivot in a different direction in the face of diminishing returns.
1: Can I ask a quick question on that one? We were just chatting about that inside our mastermind, and we're talking a lot about Just the challenges that it face of when do you grind really hard and when it gets harder, you get harder kind of thing. How does that affect within the the masculine and the feminine inside of that? Does that change or is it the same for for males and females to attack this the same way?
0: Yeah. Well, I think what's important to remember when we talk about masculine and feminine is we can talk about that from a gender standpoint, and we can also talk about that from an energetic standpoint. So For me as a woman, I'm feminine in terms of gender and I have a lot of feminine energy. I also have a lot of masculine energy. Masculine energy is typically about creating and grinding and pushing and not giving up. And like you said, like working harder, getting harder when things get harder, right? And so when we talk about the masculine and feminine, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, that can be relative to gender right? Like how I identify, how you identify. It can also be about the energy that we have within. Not all men are majority masculine energy and not all women are majority feminine energy, right? So we get to look at the energetic composition that exists for us as people in addition to our gender.
1: That's cool. No, I was just curious to, to see if that had a, a role inside the grit because that's just something that we've talked a lot about inside of our our mastermind lately is I just noticed a lot of the members inside of it are are struggling with the decision of, do I get harder when it gets harder or do I back off a little bit and see where things are and kind of reassess the scenarios? I
0: think part of it is about looking at the environment. There was this little company called Blockbuster that put their heads down and got really gritty. They had an opportunity to purchase Netflix for a very low price tag early on they didn't they just missed netflix and netflix competition and they put their head down and continued on their path despite challenge and they're no longer with us right yeah and then we see other we see other organizations that have pivoted in a new direction and are thriving and and doing better doing well So, I think the answer to that question is what we get to do now is be very aware of our environment and to look at how the landscape is changing, to look at what are the disruptors that are emerging? What are the new opportunities? How is our sort of product to market fit? How how does that come together? It's okay with productive perseverance. I talk with organizations and leaders a lot about strategic planning around this practice, and people say, is it OK to still make a three to five year plan? You can absolutely still make a threat three to five year plan, but you don't want to wait three or five years to check in on how that three to five year plan is doing. You want to have quarterly touch points to look at how the market is changing and what disruptions are existing. So I think the more stable the environment you're in or you think you are and the more highly structured, the less likely that environment is to change the more that it works to be gritty and put your head down and push through challenges, right? The more volatility shifting, changing, the more it's important to continue to reassess. And quitting is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, there is such a thing as sunk expense, diminishing returns, having the savvy and the foresight to realize that the energy that you are putting into a particular goal gets to be pivoted in a new direction either small or large is a really important characteristic for leaders both in the corporate world and entrepreneurs
1: very cool i'd love to hear what the final three things are
0: sure so the third one is connection so connection is first and foremost about the connection we have with ourselves trusting our gut listening to our intuition that still small voice within ourselves knowing our value And then being able to navigate the connection that we have with ourselves with the connection that we have with other people, whether that's our family members or a partner or children or peers, our manager, that type of thing. And that intersectionality of how we care for ourselves and how we care for others and whom we prioritize. Do we prioritize ourselves? Do we prioritize others? People that are people pleasers tend to put everybody ahead of themselves people that are more self-focused, right? Maybe spend a little bit more, a little bit more time or maybe too much time thinking about their own experience as opposed to focusing on the collective or on the community. But this really when we talk about leadership, connection is deeply important because we're in a moment where we're talking a lot about stress, burnout, exhaustion. People just they've had enough, it's the quiet quitting, the great reset, it's the great resignation. And so this connection is about the great resignation and the great reset are about coming back to ourselves and starting to listen in again around what are our dreams? What is our greatest purpose? What do we think our calling is when it's been sort of covered up by all of the external stuff, right? And there's not a person who is burned out, stressed out, or exhausted who hasn't on some level sacrifice their connection with themselves for the greater good or to complete a project or to push some work forward. So connecting with ourselves deeply buffers against stress, burnout, and exhaustion. And then how we navigate those external connections is always an ongoing dialogue. The fourth practice is the practice of gradiosity. So this is a word that I made up to sort of encapsulate what I was hearing from people. So first and foremost, to be able to look on a challenge typically after some time and to say, ah, I can see the good in that. Even if I wouldn't have chosen that circumstance, I can see the goodness that came from having gone through that moment. And then there's the osity part, which is generosity. So that's building on that first practice of vulnerability and being willing to generously share our challenges with others so that they can learn, vicariously like, curiously from our experience. In the business world, and the leadership world, this is what it means to be a coach and a mentor rather than give advice and tell people what to do. We can tell these stories as a way to help people understand what we've been through and as an illustrative kind of teaching point. And then the let's practice, the fifth practice, is the practice of possibility. And the practice of possibility is about what we are talking about having that vision for the future, being able to see something that doesn't exist today, being able to get people excited about what we can all create together. That's possibility. And within any possibility, there's uh, navigating the inflection between opportunity and risk, right? What's the opportunity that we can create, and what's the risk that we're assessing that's going to come along with that opportunity? to create the broader practice of possibility.
2: Thanks for sharing those. And there's, we can probably do a podcast episode on each of those pieces, but I wanna ask you on, on the go big side of things, I'm really curious on your answer on this one. I think so many people in entrepreneurship or business or just in life in general, trying to make a better impact, get hit with resilient issues, whether that be, salary cap, self-doubt, insert excuse here, I'll say, but do you think that the emotion that you get from the impact you're able to create on the giving side of things, whether that be a check to your favorite organization or physically helping build an orphanage in Cuba or wherever you want to go, do you think that that emotion is more, I don't want to say special for the individual? With the more resiliency they also have to go through to get to that point.
0: What we're talking about is altruism. Mm. Do you think? Could be. So altruism is essentially, it's a spectrum for us as humans. But it's how altruistic are we? How likely are we to give away something or sacrifice something for the good of another person, right? And so... I think your question is, and, and altruism is also about like that, that good feeling that we get when we've helped someone, right? So I think you're asking, if a person has been through more stuff, does it feel better to be altruistic? Does that That's seem accurate? Right. Right. Does that seem what you're asking? So my answer to that is a big fat, I have no idea. <laughs> What I can tell you from like psychology, neuropsychology, positive psychology, we value things that we have to earn, right? So just think of it this way. There's two webinars that you could attend. The first webinar is free and the second webinar you paid $49 to attend, right? Now at the last minute, you have to miss this webinar and there's no replay. The first webinar, you're kind of like, okay, I really wanted to go to that. I was interested in the information, but at the end of the day, it was free. I'm cool, right? So, so second webinar, you're like all of those things. Plus darn it, I, play, I paid $49 for that webinar and I am not going to get my, my money's worth, right? So there's a little something more that we're like, oh, I paid for that. I invested, I gave some resources and now I don't get to have the output of that. So we value things more that we have to earn or that we have to pay for, right? So here's an, here's an example, right? Kids who are going to go on a humanitarian trip and build a, a well for a community in the, Do, in the Dominican Republic or Haiti or something like that, right? That's amazing that kids and their families are going to go to a foreign country and help people that they've never had to help before. Now, what if you say to each one of those children, okay, you can go to Haiti and you, it's it's Haiti now, even though they're on the same island, we're going to go with Haiti. So you say to each one of those children, okay, you're, you're going to get to go to Haiti and you're going to get to build this well. You're going to be there for a week. And by the way, in order to go on this humanitarian trip, you also need to raise in your community to cover your expenses, your flight, your food, you know, whatever, right? Now, who is going to value that experience more? Intrinsically, it's going to be incredibly valuable to go to Haiti, to build a well, to meet people, to know that you did something to help other people. And if I spent or had to raise $1,000 in my community, knock on doors, baby, work as a concessionist at a movie theater to like, I'm going to value that experience even more because I had to pull together a thousand dollars to also get to have
1: it. That is fascinating. And it's so real for a lot of what we talk about on the give big component of a lot of businesses, adding a for-purpose component of, it's one thing just to write a check, but when you have to go out there and earn the money and use it and build the business that has the generating part of it. For us, donating ten dollars a door for every rental door we have per month, but it's it's not just like oh we had a big check come in. It's like no, we had to actually go out and accumulate doors and build the portfolio and and build this giant machine we're trying to build. And the benefit on the back end is twice as powerful than just taking a set amount of money and just donating it away because there's actually a machine behind it that forced us to appreciate it more. So it's very cool. I wanted to jump into a little bit of your, your giving side now of the podcast. You, you worked for, when you worked for Cigna, you said you went over and did some work and you worked with executives on taking them over there and showing them a different stuff. I'd love for you to just touch a little bit on that and then touch a little bit on how you've become a Goodwill Ambassador for the African Community and Conservation Foundation.
0: Absolutely. So really I lo- aligned, I think, with the ethos of the work that you do as I've led high potential programs at Cigna, which is a Fortune 20 company, as I mentioned, and at Nike, it was really important in our high potential programs for leaders that we had leaders focus on what they were going to get from the program, right? Like every leader that sort of tapped on the shoulder is a high potential, like, hey, you're high potential. But they're like, great, like what am I going to get from this program? And how is this going to accelerate my career? And that's an incredibly important lens to have. And the second lens that I always wanted leaders to have was what were they going to give, right? Part of that is recognizing the unique skill set that exists within each of us. If I'm very operationally effective, if I'm very strategic, if I work well through influence, if I'm a powerful and prolific communicator, I can give that to the high potential community that I'm now becoming a part of. And I can share that and I can teach others. I can share this gift with others. And I also felt it was incredibly important for our leaders to get connected with our local community and to give back. So at Signa, we have 86 offices across the globe, or at least we did at the time when I was in that organization. And so when we took leaders to other offices, right? An office that we had in Mumbai, an office that we had in Shanghai, China, I wanted us not just to go to the office, get to know the other Cigna people that worked there from a different culture, but to get out into the community and to find a way to give back, right? And in healthcare, that's a really long-term kind of, you don't just sort of go into a community and say like, wave your corporate magic wand and say, okay, all of you have a lower rate of diabetes or something like that, right? So one of the organizations that I was looking at partnering was this incredible organization that unfortunately is no longer operational, but it was Starkey Hearing Foundation. And what they could teach you to do an hour was to fit hearing aids. And then they would set up these hearing camps and they worked with the local grassroots community. And you could have four, 500, 600, 1,000 people coming to these hearing camps on buses, walking. To get hearing aids because they had some deficit in their hearing. And working with them for just 15 to 20 minutes, sometimes you could sit the hearing aids and all of a sudden they could hear sound or hear sound more clearly for the first time. And it's just spectacular. I mean, just getting to see people hear sound for the first time and communicate with their families, it's absolutely incredible. Matt Nathanson, I don't know if you're familiar with him as a singer songwriter, he's out of san francisco has some incredible music and he has this amazing song that he wrote when he went on a starkey hearing mission called headphones and there's footage from fitting the hearing aids and people being able to hear for the first time babies hearing their mother's voice for the first time it's just incredible so i can go on and on about that when i was working with that organization i met the director at the time brady Forsett. and brady has since become the executive director with an organization that i'm now an ambassador for as you mentioned called African Community and Conservation Foundation. And what I love about African Community Conservation Foundation is so many things, but they're doing two really critical things as an organization that's giving back that I think makes them very successful and very impactful. The first one is they're partnering all over the place. They partnered with an organization called Tusk which the royal family like Prince William has been involved in. So they're not like just trying to do their own thing, just claim their own peace, but they're very open to partnership. And when they go into Africa and work with people on the ground, they're not coming in themselves. They're finding organizations that already haven't figured it out. And then they're funding those organizations that know what they're doing and that have the relationships and are oftentimes tied to the local community. So that's the first thing. So important. Second thing is, this is a an organization that's all about conserving the land and animals in Africa, right? Where else can you find a lion outside of Africa or a zebra or a giraffe or a wildebeest outside of a zoo? You can't. It's a very specific environment and a very specific ecosystem that exists there in Africa. And if we poach those animals to extinction, we will no longer have them on this planet, right? And that's tremendously frightening to me to think in our lifetime, we could see, our, see the last rhinoceros, see the last lion, see the last elephant. And it's very possible. It's very possible if we don't have organizations like this looking after the animals. So they have a three-pronged approach. They look at anti-poaching, they look at land conservation, making sure animals have the land to migrate. And three, they work with the local communities. Most animals are are poached or harmed because people want to hurt animals, but because they just don't have the means to feed their family. So when we can uplift and educate communities about how tourism can support them and give them meaningful jobs, then we can eliminate a lot of that What we call human-wildlife conflict that occurs on the fringes of the of the Serengeti. So they're just doing absolutely incredible work. I can't say enough about them. They've gotten the attention, the the attention of a lot of celebrities and and high-level organizations. I've been working with them for probably five five years now, and they just continue to to grow and expand and to do incredibly meaningful work. I can't say enough wonderful things about them as an organization. So check them out on Instagram. I know you're going to put their handle, African CCF, in your show notes and their website. They're absolutely incredible. And I'm delighted and honored to continue to work with their executive director, Brady Forsett, and the organization as a
2: whole. Sounds like a pretty incredible organization and definitely on the bucket list for me. is It's one of the last continents I've been able to yet yeah, stand on and would love to do some sort of like I'll say eco-friendly tour to to see that type of wildlife because I think that is, it's just so rare. And he said it, it would be a very sad world for imagine without that. But I'd love for you to take a sec too and perhaps brain on yourself a little bit and just share a favorite memory of yours of giving that still gives you goosebumps today.
0: Well, I think all of us who are givers, who endeavor to give, we recognize that in the process of giving, there's this giving alchemy that occurs. And somehow we always get more than we, than we actually give. And so anytime I've wanted to give big, I've always somehow gotten so much more in those moments than I'll ever be able to give or ever be able to pay back. And I think part of the learning there is that's maybe not the point, right? the The point is, when you, when you give the gift away, when you give the miracle away, somehow it is alchemized to exist forever. And I will say those Starkey Hearing missions were tremendously powerful to get to be a humbleness to people hearing sound and communicating for the first time sometimes in their, in their lives. And with African Community and Conservation Foundation They do something called a safari for good. And you pay to go on the safari and have the opportunity to see the animals and the communities that you're investing in as as a patron or for me as a patron and an ambassador. And one of the things that we had been working on was translocating rhinos from One from the San Diego Zoo and a couple from South Africa up to Tanzania. Because as the rhino populations are dwindling, the genetic pool is smaller and there's not as many like mating options. And you kind of get like inbreeding amongst a species. And so we had just translocated, I think about five rhino, which means like you tranquilize them and you fly them in a jumbo jet. And we went to the uber secret like, location of where they were keeping these rhinos for 30 days to observe them before they were going to release them into the wild. And they asked me if I wanted to hand feed one of the rhinos through this like bamboo fence that they were keeping this like giant animal in. And they don't really have teeth. It's like kind of feeding a forest or whatever. So they gave me some pellets and I held the pellets through and the rhino ate right out of my hand. I could feel a little, little mouth eating the pellets and just coming so close to such a such an epic animal like that and having the opportunity to touch and feel something that's going to go out into the wild. And I would never have the opportunity to be that close again was incredibly meaningful.
1: That's special. And it's got to be cool, especially with your passion for animals and and wanting to see them succeed. So that's that's very beautiful. I would love to jump in now to our giving round if you're ready for it. Some rapid fire questions, quick answer. A see see what you got. So this one might be a little bit of a layup, but brag on one charity that you like right now.
0: Mm. Well, I've already mentioned African CCS of course, and I've mentioned the former Starkey Hearing Foundation. I'm a huge fan of Nurturing Minds. (laughs) They have a school for girls in Tanzania, and I support one of their students who's just graduating this year. And this school, Nurturing Minds, it's the SEGA School, Secondary Education for Girls Advancement, I think it's the A. SEGA, S-E-G-A, like the (laughs) old-time video game. And what they do is they allow girls to board away from home and to focus on getting an education. And it keeps them safe from childhood marriage, FGM, which is how you might know feminine genitalia is mutilated. It's a tribal practice that still exists in Tanzania and Kenya today. And many girls don't have the feminine sanitary products to be able to go to school when they're having their cycle. And so this is a school that provides girls an opportunity to have a tremendous education, to focus on their education. And so I'm a huge fan of the work that they're doing around women and girls empowerment and advancement.
2: That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. What gets you more excited, donating a large, say, $1 million dollar check or spending a week physically helping others?
0: Let's say both. If I had a million dollar, no, let me say it differently. When I have a million dollar check to donate, I'm going to be super pumped about that. And to get to go and see how we get to share that money with community, even if we don't tell anyone that the million dollar check came from me, it's so meaningful to get to see and meet the people's lives that I get to impact, we get to impact. So I'd say both.
1: Very cool. Who inspires you with their giving?
0: I would say Warren Buffett and what he's put together in terms of creating a community of people who are giving the majority of their wealth away toward really important kind of human climate, environment and conservation and probably healthcare needs across across the globe. He, he says so many amazing things, but one of the quotes of his that I love is he talks about how much of your wealth you should pass on to your children, how you can think about that. And he says, give your children enough that they'll do something, but not so much that they don't have to do anything.
2: Spread mm-hmm. the needle. Do you think that startups should include a line item of donations from day one in their business or wait till they've seen some success? and then include the give back component?
0: Yeah, I think we we all have good intentions of giving back. And it's really easy to say, we're not there yet, not yet, not now. Every little bit helps. So I think when we think about our startup organizations, I think what we can do is look at like, what's the percentage of, we can say, gross income, Net income, revenue, however you want to think about it, and as a, as a startup, you're really strapped for cash, right? But even thinking about what is that percentage of your of your income on your balance sheet that you're going to put toward that you're going to put toward giving, I think is really important. And even if that's just twenty dollars starting out, some statistics a while back were that people make like three dollars a month. In, in India, working like a, a factory labor job. So even just setting aside $20 a month, that's four people who you can help help them educate and, and, and feed their families in a foreign country. So every little bit makes a difference.
1: That's awesome. What do you think of when you hear go big to give big?
0: Working hard and smart to create a really strong financial picture to build wealth Not so that I can keep it sort of in my bank account or inside the four walls of my home, but then I can think about what are the things in this world that I'm really passionate about and be in a very fortunate position to get to give toward the charities and the initiatives that really speak to me and align with how I want to support the world.
2: In one word, describe the feeling you get when you give
0: happy.
1: Love that word. The final question, I'm sure you've heard it before, but we ask every one of our guests, do you believe that money can buy you happiness?
0: I believe that money can buy you satisfaction and stability. What's the number one stressor for married couples? Right. Five answers. So when finances are tight, when somebody has lost their job, when things aren't going well, money and finances or lack thereof, it really be very difficult for households and for couples and for relationships. There's also some research that was done again, this a while back kind of prior to inflation, but like something like if you make $75,000, let's say living in Charlotte, North Carolina, if you make $30,000 more than that, $105,000, you're not going to be appreciably happier than someone who makes seventy-five. dollars But someone who makes seventy-five dollars is going to be appreciably happier than somebody who makes forty-five. dollars Why? Because when you're making $45,000 a year, you're strapped for cash. You can't afford things. You can't go on vacation. You have to tell your kids. They have to have hand-me-downs as opposed to maybe the new school clothes that they want to have. So I think there's a level of sustainability. And once we get to that level of sustainability, whatever that is, and it's going to look different depending on where we're living and what's the cost of living and what's happening with inflation and interest rates. But once we get to that level of sustainability, then Anything beyond that doesn't make us appreciably happier. But being below that threshold is actually really difficult and sort of wrecks havoc on our psyche and on relationships and our own stability and satisfaction.
1: Beautiful answer. and Very true. So... Taryn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and delivering so much incredible information for us on a topic that we don't get to talk a ton about that I'm hoping we can do more of. And obviously, I want you to plug your book for a second. Where can people find it? When's it coming out? And how can they get more of what you're sharing?
0: Yes, well, I want to thank the two of you both for the work that you're doing and and having this conversation about Going big to give big and to give back and to think about needs and communities outside of ourselves. I think that's so deeply needed and so wonderful that this is the lens and the focus of the work that you're doing. Thank you so so much for that. This is a podcast and people that listen to podcasts like to listen to other podcasts. And so I have a podcast called Flourish or Fold Stories of Resilience which is well-known people sharing their lesser well-known stories of resilience. So so easy to see that person on the football field or on the stage at the concert or the person on the movie screen and being like, oh, that was, they just did that because it was easy for them. But to really unpack the challenges, the changes and the complexity that was part of their journey in getting there that, you know, we so don't often see. So I just plug that podcast. And then my book, The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People, is going to be out next year, early April. So excited. And really looking forward to that being on bookshelves and sharing more when we get closer to that release date.
1: Awesome. Well, we'll definitely share that out and help you promote it because it's such a great reason. And absolutely just loved having you on. And thank you so much for coming on and inspiring us to go bigger with our dreams and goals so that we can give bigger with our profits.
0: Thank you you. so much. It's a joy and an honor to be here.
1: Awesome. Thank you. You have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening to the show. If you know someone who's an example of Go Big to Get Big, we would love if you could share this with them. We want to get our message out to as many listeners as we can. And it all starts by having people like you share it with your friends. Also, if you enjoyed the show, take 30 seconds and give us a five-star review. It's a simple act of giving that is free for you helps us grow our message and in return allows others to find us sooner. And until the next episode, remember, always go bigger with your dreams and goals so you can give bigger with your profit.